You are listening to Mrs. Miracle's Music Room Podcast, episode number three. everyone, this is Aileen Miracle from Mrs. Miracle's Music Room, and today I'm going to be talking to David Rao from Make Moments Matter about Orv Schulwerk. In my last podcast, I um, talked with Carla Chewinski about the Kodai philosophy, and so I asked very similar questions of David about Orv Schulwerk, and uh, he had some really great insights, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. I first met David actually through Teachers Pay Teachers. I'm in a couple Facebook groups with him and really enjoyed getting to know him online and then really excited to meet him in person when I presented at my alma mater, Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant last year. I was able to meet him in person and he was truly just as kind and funny in person as I thought he would be. So I had a lot of fun talking to David. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this as well. So let's dive right in. This is the interview. All right, I'm so happy to be talking to David Rao um, about the Orff Schulwerk philosophy. So, David, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you found the Orff Schulwerk philosophy? Absolutely. So, um, I went to college in Illinois at a school called Greenville College. Um, and I did a music degree there, and then I went on to get my master's right away after school in Kansas City. Um, and in Kansas City, I studied choral conducting and um, music education, got certified there. Um, and when I left Can- or when I left that degree, um, I was I was really nervous. I had gotten a job at the elementary level, and going into the degree, I thought like, you know, I'm going to be a college choir professor. Like mm-hmm. that was my plan. And when I did my student teaching, I realized I really love students. Like, I just really love working with students. And then I realized for years and years, people had, you know, given me hints like, ooh, you're really good with kids. You're great working with kids. You should work with kids. Like, all these people have been telling me that. Mm -hmm. I'd sort of brush it off like, I'm going to be this great professional. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so I was nervous, though, because I felt like I didn't really know enough. And one of my great mentor professors there um, told me about this workshop, and it was called Orphan Running, which is a ridiculous title, but I love it. (laughs) Um, And the the Kansas Orph chapter every year has this two-day workshop, and they bring in amazing presenters. And I went and saw um, Kay Lido, who's from Las Vegas, and I was just sort of blown away. It was a Uh great, great experience. I used all those activities in that first year of teaching, and I, I joined the Kansas Orph chapter, and um, through a few years later, I was encouraged and took my Orph levels. I took the, that training, and um, actually this summer, I'm going to take my last set of training, my master level this summer, um, back there in Kansas. Awesome. All right, so if you had to describe a typical Orph classroom in three sentences, what would you say? Um, I think I could actually pare it down to just three words, even. Okay, <laughs> like, great. Um, or, or, or if you can sort of sum up in, in imitation, improvisation, and exploration. And I feel like a lot of people are really good at imitation, whether it's clapping, echoing, or learning by rote, or singing back. That's pretty easy for most teachers, whether they have a training in something or not. Um, improvisation gets a little bit more difficult, but it's something that is definitely a part of the ORF, ORF, a 
approach in general, and that could be instruments or singing or, or whatever. And then exploration, just trying new things in a lot of different ways. Um, again, with instruments or movement or singing, it, it sort of all is tied up together. So imitation, improv, and exploration. Awesome. So if you had to um, kind of summarize like the misconceptions you've heard about Orschulwerk, what would you say? Um, I think the biggest one is that everyone thinks, when they think Orff, they think of the instruments. They think mm-hmm. of xylophones and glockenspiels. Um, and that's definitely evolved to become a part of the Orff approach, but that is definitely, especially if you go to a training, that is not what it's about, necessarily. It's part of it, um, but the Orff-Schulwerk method developed out of the work of Karl Orff, who was a composer in Germany around the time of World War II, um, and also with his colleague, who used to be a student, uh, Gunil Kaitman, and they developed this approach that, um, you know, is really based on opportunity and options and taking something and flipping it around and trying mm-hmm. to think. So, you know, it's you do a lot of that on the instruments, but even when Orff first started out, he didn't start with instruments. It was like someone gave them instruments and gave them recorders, and they just made it work, you know, Mm -hmm. and actually what's really fascinating is that their original school was a dance school. And so it was not, it was about like they, there was a dance school and they added a music class. And then, you know, they talked about how music is tied in with dance and you can't really have one without the other. And, and so it sort of developed into this huge thing, but it's not just the instruments. You can have a super successful orf class without having a single barred instrument or recorder available to you. Great. Yeah, that's that's great to know because I do think that misconception is out there. And you had a, you and I had talked earlier about the misconception about sequence um, that some yeah. people look at the um, at the or philosophy as not having enough sequence. So um, what has been your experience with that? Well, I as an or person, <laughs> somebody who's had or training, and not any Kodai training. I look at Kodai as being super sequential, like knowing mm-hmm. this and then this and then this. Is that sort of indicative of Kodai? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I and going through ORF levels training, um, I think when you do a formal training like that, you can see more of a sequence. And right. actually, um, there's some really fantastic books. There's one called Discovering ORF with Jan Frazee, mm-hmm. um, that has a full sequence of this concept of this year, this concept of this year, this concept of this year. Um, and I think that that is a part of it. But ORF teachers would also tell you, like, you need to go with your students and their ability, and you need to base what you're doing off of what they can handle. So if you stick to a very strict, like, this at this year, this at this year, you may not be getting at what they really need. Right. So there is a framework, absolutely, but the with flexibility. Work workshop or yeah, with flexibility. And when you do a workshop or levels training, so much of that training you get is is getting you into the mindset of teaching how to improvise or teaching how to explore and be comfortable and okay with that. And there's less of the formal like this first, this next, this next. Yes, that's really interesting. That's a, a very cool perspective. Um, what excited you the most about the Orff Schulwerk philosophy? Um, I think that for me, it was it was the idea of uh, just a great freedom within a framework of possibilities. Um, I think one of the really fun things about Orff is that 
they teach you how to scaffold in a lesson so that you have this, you can have this concept of what you're going to get to, but it breaks things down and, and along the way, from, you, you break down to the simplest possible, most elemental form and you teach that to students first. And as things develop, you know, a student might say, this is really great. What would it be like if we did it on the bar instrument? Oh, mm-hmm. let's try it. What would it be like if we did it with movement? I don't know. Let's try it. Or what would it be like if we took this from recorders and put it on glockenspiels instead? Oh, I don't know. So it's, it's going off of what the student gives you, and you have that framework of here's the song we're doing today, and eventually I would love to, to bring in, you know, do a little bit with form, but along the way, there are a lot of ways you can go. And I love that idea of having the freedom to follow a student's whim or follow an idea to maybe a different path. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So if we, if you're thinking about like a typical second grade or if inspired lesson, what would that look like in your classroom? Sure. Well, um, I think again, going off of that freedom within a framework, I think you could, with that idea in mind, you could have a song planned to teach. And in the lesson, for if you had four different sections of a second grade, each one could have a different final performance or final mm-hmm. moment, you know, depending on how things go. Um, but for an example, I think, like, if you take Charlie Over the Ocean, mm-hmm. it's a pretty well-known folk song. Um, if I were going to teach that, I would start by singing by rote and, Maybe we would add some actions, and actually, it's great for sing by rote because it is an echoing song. Right, yeah. But, you know, it'd be perfect. But um, I might say, you know, I could say, like, well, what are some sea animals? And we could brainstorm some sea animals, and we could make an ostinato based on the sea animals. We could say jellyfish, starfish, blue whale kelp, uh-huh. jellyfish, starfish, and do that over and over, and then do that while we sing the song. Uh-huh. Two parts, or we could we could create a word chain that we sing and do that while we sing and explore that. Or, you know, there's a chase game that you can do with it, a circle game. And one day you could add that in and um, you could easily add a bass xylophone part and have some kids playing and some kids doing the game or some kids doing that ostinato that they created out of ocean animals. Or you could take the rhythm instruments and you could do the, the ostinato that you created out of, you know, sea animals and play it play that rhythm on a woodblock. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of cool that you can take this one song and go in a million directions with it. Yeah, That's especially. Like, I, I might walk in with the idea, like, I'm going to teach the song, and then we're going to brainstorm the animal name. That would be my plan. Uh-huh. And if the class doesn't give me anything, you know, I'd yeah. like, well, what would it be like if we did this? Right. But a lot of times, once kids are used to it, they'll say, like, hey, remember how we did this with this song? What would it be like if we did it here? I don't know. Let's try it. Yeah. So it, it sort of depends. It's hard to say typical, but I think that's sort of a good path of take this thing as an impetus and go somewhere with it. Yeah, and I love your point about how, you know, it really depends on the class. Each class will have something maybe different, you know, vastly different by the end of the class, depending on what the class came up with. Right. And I mean, I do have to plan some things in. I mean, if I'm gonna, if I'm going to have an assessment on how they're playing, well, then I definitely want to teach, you know, a song that has an accompaniment that I can then assess. But right. some of the other things that come along the way, that that can that can happen on its own. But right. I, you know, if there are things that for sure I need to teach, or or I really want to hit a special melodic thing, well, then I'll choose a song 
that has that component that then I could maybe come back to later. Like Charlie over the ocean is great for like low so. Mm-hmm. So I could do that intentionally so that then a jumping off point would be like, hey, let's try it with hand signs and right. then move into that on purpose. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So tell us about an aha moment that you had as you went in this it could have been like as you went through your training or as you've been teaching that has to do with ORF. Um, I think the thing that sticks out most for me, and I feel like a lot of people who've had an experience with ORF would agree, um, is that it made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I say that because, you know, the first time you go to a workshop or a session at a state convention and the presenter's like, hey, let's stand up and move to this beat. You're mm-hmm. like, ooh. <laughs> people are looking at me. Or, you know, like, I don't want to do something wrong. And uh-huh. I think the thing about orchestral work that is so fantastic is that it is not a safe philosophy. You know, if you're the kind of teacher who wants a lesson plan with all of your steps in a row and you will follow those to the T, you know, this is not really the approach for you. Uh-huh. But I think that what's great about it is that you know, once I got past that part of I can be uncomfortable and that's okay, Uh that I ended up learning a lot more because, you know, it stretched me out of my comfort zone and the idea of like, well, maybe students won't succeed right away, but that doesn't mean that they're not learning, you know, or maybe students will have a stumble or they'll go somewhere that I'm not attending. That doesn't mean that my lesson isn't successful. It means that they're thinking in a different way, you know, so... You know, I think ORF levels training is a great example because I went in thinking, like, I'm going to learn exactly how to teach this. And in the process, you know, one of the big components is recorder technique and another big component is movement. So I spent an hour and a half a day learning how to do expressive movement, and that was uncomfortable. But I learned so much. So I think being uncomfortable and being okay with that was something that was a huge aha for me. Yeah, I think that's like a good life philosophy in general, (laughs) you know, to go outside your comfort zone. And sometimes when you're outside of the comfort zone, you you learn the most and you grow the most. Absolutely. Awesome. So what are your favorite ORF resources? And these could be print, they could be online, anything that you can think of that's helped you on your journey. Well, if I'm thinking like core philosophy, if I'm thinking like, you know, college Mm-hmm. getting the idea of what this is in my head. I'd say you know, there is a really big, it's a blue book by Carl Orff himself called The Schulwerk, where he talks about how it developed and mm-hmm. some of his philosophical ideas. And that's okay. I, I've read that book. It's really pretty good. And if you're an Orff person, you should read it. Mm-hmm. Um, another book is called Elementaria, and that is a little red book, and it's written by his student and sort of co-creator Kate Mon, which mm-hmm. is K-E-E-T-M-A-N mm-hmm. and she goes through and really she it's so good it's for that teacher who does want a little bit more and gives you the breakdown of here's how you teach rhythms here's how you can do this here's how you can incorporate movement like she Orf was like the big idea and she was the details person and actually when when somebody sent them a box of recorders Orf was like hey Kate Mon why don't you go figure out how to play these? And she was like, where are the fingering charts? And he's like, we don't have them. And she came up with all of them. So if you can imagine, like that's the book she wrote, and it has all these amazing, amazing details. Um, But those are the two, you know, people who created the method. They're, um, like I said before, Discovering Orcs by Jan Frazee is a really Mm -hmm. great book if you you want to get into it but don't know a lot. Um, She breaks it down, and that's a lot more current. But I think maybe my favorite stuff – 
Jeff and Randy, the two um, the two guys who wrote the game plan book, mm-hmm. they started out by writing smaller books, and there are books like As American as Apple Pie, and mm-hmm. they have great lessons you could pull out if you're interested in seeing how it would work in a classroom. Um, and I think the best resource, and this is free, is if you go to YouTube and look up Rob Amchin, A-M-C-H-I-N, uh-huh. and he's a teacher in Kentucky, he's an orphan master he's just really brilliant and actually taught my level three class and he has over 500 videos on there um and there are 66 videos i look today that are intro to or there are example lessons there are lessons of him teaching there are students i mean like if you don't want to go to a workshop or a levels course but sort of want to get an idea like this is a great and free way to do that yeah that's great i've seen quite a few of his videos but i i didn't realize that he had so many about the philosophy itself. That's really awesome. And I will link to all of... I didn't of... either, and I'm going to go back and look at all of them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know they were there either, so I'm going to go do a lot That's more. great. I'm going to link to all of the resources that you just mentioned in my um, show notes for those of you who are listening, so that you can just click the awesome. link and, and go to that. Awesome. So how do you see the OR philosophy fitting into today's classroom with today's technology and educational initiatives? Um, I think that it links in pretty well. Um, you know, I think especially with like Common Core, um, which is, I don't know if that's going to last, who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, that I think there's a big push for like growth mindset and things like that. You know, I think yes. that the org philosophy is great because it really is about student ideas and student thinking. And so it's, the, the philosophy teaches kids to think about possibilities and think about different ways to try things. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, that sinks in a lot with what they're doing in the classroom. It's find a different way to get the answer or think of another creative way to do this. And, and maybe this is also, you know, with all of the standardized testing and everything else, this is a great way to get them to think more creatively when they're not getting that reinforcement in their classroom. Yes. Great. And then it's actually my last question. What is the best advice you can give someone who's interested in ORF and would like to learn more? I know you already mentioned the Rob Amchin videos as a great jumping off point, but what else could you tell people? I would say that the absolute best advice I could give you is go to a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, because there there are workshops. I mean, I'm in Michigan. There are three ORF chapters in Michigan. Um, there are just tons of work chapters around the country, probably within an hour drive of you. Um, and that is a great place for a couple reasons. Number one, you know, you can see lessons that you can take back and try out yourself. And you can actually experience them. But you also meet people who understand the or philosophy, who can give you some tips or yes. become a mentor or, you know. And for me, that's really how I became a part of the community is because I went and I, I liked it. And also I met these people who felt the same things and bought the same things. They really keyed me in. So in a workshop, a lot of times for a first time member, it's either free or discounted or if nothing else, it's way cheaper than going to like a levels course. You Mm -hmm. don't have to take off two weeks in the summer. So I think, you know, that's probably the, the best way, honestly, to get a peek at what it's all about. Awesome. Uh, I really appreciated all this information. I'm sure everybody listening will too. Is there anything else you want to add about Orf Schulwerk? Um, yeah, I would say you know, take a peek at, at some of it. It's such a big, 
vast sort of world. I mean, literally, there there are ORF teachers all over the world. Like, or the the main books that ORF wrote are translated into like eighty languages or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, just it's it's everywhere. So I think you can search ORF and you can search the Schulwerk, and you're going to find a lot of different things that are like it. You know, and yes. I don't think that ORF is so strict in it approach or view that there's only one way to do Orschel work. Right. I mean, there's, there may be some ways that are better or more true to what Orf thought, but I mean, I think Artie Almeida takes Orf's ideas or Lynn Kleiner and Music Rhapsody take Orf's ideas or even Jeff and Randy in the game plan series is based on Orschel work. I think if you like any of those sort of lessons that play with that idea of Orschel work, it's worth looking a little bit more to see what else this philosophy brings. Yes. All great advice. Thank you so much, David. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you today and I love reading your blog and listening to your podcast. So can you tell everybody where they can find you with your blog and your podcast and as well as your awesome TPT store? Yeah. Well, um, my blog is makemomentsmatter.org. Um, and if you search in the iTunes store or a lot of those podcasty places, if you either search Make Moments Matter or if you search my name, David Rao, um, you can find that. And same for Teachers Pay Teachers. It's David Rao at Make Moments Matter, and it, it brings up all of that stuff. Awesome. And I can link to, um, you know, your, your blog and your social media accounts and all that um, in the show notes as well. Um, I just listened awesome. to David's um, second podcast about Dan's Josie, and it was really awesome. So I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast. Um, David, thank you so much. This was all really great information. And I had a couple aha moments as uh, I was talking to you. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It was really awesome talking with you. And thanks for having your episode about the Kodai philosophy. I loved listening to that. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, David. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to David Rao for his expertise and insights into Orf Schulwerk. Um, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoyed listening as well. To find out more about the resources that he mentioned and um, websites that he's mentioned, if you go to the show notes, you can go to my blog at www.mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com and then click on podcast and then click on podcast number three, and you'll find that information as well as where to find David with his blog and his social media accounts and his podcast, which is really um, awesome to listen to. I highly recommend it. If you get a chance, please leave a review in the iTunes store. It helps other music educators find this podcast. And I just wanted to give a shout out about next week, or I should say next episode, which will be two weeks from now. I will be interviewing my friend Andrew Ellingson about Kodai and Orf. So um, in the last podcast, I talked to Carla Chewinski just about Kodai. And then in this podcast, I just talked to David about Orf. And now we're going to talk about how to integrate both of them because Andrew, um, who's a good friend of mine and is just brilliant, has certification in both Kodai and ORF, and he does lots of workshops about how to work you know, with both philosophies together. So please stay tuned for that. And if you subscribe in the iTunes store, then you'll be notified once the podcast becomes live. Thank you so much for listening today and have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.